Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture with me this morning and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 32. In a moment I'll read verses 15 and following. There was a saying that bolstered the Protestant Reformation. It helped buoy the reformers along in their renewed dedication and devotion to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a Latin phrase that went like this, post tenebras lux. Translated, it means after darkness, light. With the darkness that covered their world, their countries and their cities, during those days it would have been easy to be discouraged. It was so dark and the light seemed so faint and so small. Would the light really prevail? It could be that we think we live in the darkest part of history, and there is much darkness to be sure. There are many spheres in life and in our culture that seem to be spinning out of control. Is the darkness overtaking us so rapidly that we are feeling discouraged? Will the light prevail? I fear we think that this is the darkest time, and I do not deny that it is dark. But there have been other dark times as well. Whether it was in the Reformation, whether it was any other dark period of history, whether it is this present darkness, we would do well to remember how Luther responded when asked to explain the Reformation. He said this, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word, that is, he translated it into German. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then I slept. And the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince and never an emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. What is it that is going to overcome our times of discouragement, when it appears that the darkness is prevailing, it will be nothing less than the unleashing of the Word of God upon the hearts and minds and souls of men, women, and children. Dear brother and sister, the Word must do it all. So with that, let's read Exodus 32. Would you stand with me as I read God's holy Word? Exodus 32, beginning in verse 15. 
Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of, the, out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord set a plague on the people because, of the, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Your law, O Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony, O Lord, is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts, O Lord, are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment, O Lord, is pure, enlightening the eyes. More desirable are they than gold, sweeter are they than honey. By them we are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus 32 
is a very dark chapter, not only in the book of Exodus, but in perhaps maybe the whole of God's Word or the whole of the first five books of the Bible. In fact, after Genesis 3, it might be the next darkest chapter in the books that Moses wrote. But there is good news after darkness, light. And so while we have been traversing our way through Exodus 32, the light is coming. Hang in there. It will come. But we must learn how the darkness can overcome the human soul. That's what Exodus 32 has been talking about. This darkness has set in. What's the problem? Is it all of Israel's uh, exterior problems? Is it all the things that are out there that are bothering them? No, all their, their problems are right here in them, in their heart. How is it that darkness overtakes the human soul? One sure way for darkness to enter in is to think that you can somehow bring God's presence into your midst while denying His holiness. You want God, or at least you want a God that you can control, a God that you can summon upon your command, but you don't want the holy God. The Israelites thought that they could get around the need of having to ascend the mountain in order to get God's presence among them. The Israelites thought, we cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. We cannot ascend up to Mount Sinai. So we know what we'll do. We will bring God down to us. But every attempt of man to bring God down to himself fails. Every attempt only promotes darkness. Every attempt never brings light. Every attempt only solidifies and hardens people in their sins. In order for man to bring God down to himself, he has to lie about who God is. Lie about what God has done. But here is the wonderful truth. When man tries to bring God down, he only perpetuates darkness. But when God descends and when God comes down, he brings his holy presence and glory into the midst of the people and then there is light. Man cannot bring God down, attempting to bring God down, is only the creature warring against the Creator. God sends Himself down. God tabernacles among men, and it's of His own doing, and it's of His own accord, not because we have made Him, not because we have forced His hand, not on the basis of our own power. God descends according to His own mercy. But as of yet, darkness has set in over the camp of Israel because they tried to bring God down into their own presence. And we've been learning that Exodus 32 is not merely about the Israelites, but is, it is an event 
that resonates in every human heart. While darkness and sin seem to have set in, let us continue with the hope that after darkness, light. What have we been learning from Exodus 32? Well, last week, we learned that we are to be confronted with the subversive nature of the human heart. We learned that we are repulsed by the stubborn nature of idolatry. And this morning, Lord willing, we will go through these next three items that we are to learn. So number three there on your outline, if you want to follow along, if you find that helpful, we, do, we are to encourage the separating nature of the faithful. We are to encourage the separating nature of the faithful. And we pick up here in verse 25. Moses had just heard that absurd excuse from Aaron. I threw the gold into the fire and out popped this calf. And while the wrath of God had been averted so that the Lord was refrained from wiping Israel off the face of the earth. Remember, that's what he wanted to do. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to take them all out. There was still punishment. There was still judgment for the sin that the people had committed. The people were still guilty, and because of their sin, they faced the consequences of their sin. Reminds me sometimes in dealing with my own children when they're in trouble, I know it's hard for you to believe that my children would never be in trouble, or would ever be in trouble. But how I see in them a mirror of my own heart. Because when they do something that's worthy of discipline, what do they say? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm thankful that they are sorry for their sin but there's still consequence for their sin. And so the Israelites still had to face the consequences of their sin. Moses saw that they had broken loose. Do you see that there in verse 25? Moses saw the people had broken loose. Why? Because Aaron had let them break loose. The idea here is that it was like the people had let down their hair. In fact, the Hebrew word here for broken loose, I'll spare you with the exact word, but it starts with the letter P and it ends with the letter R. And similarly, in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, that title ends with P and R as well. And so some people think that when it says that Moses saw the people had broken loose, that's a play on words. And this play on words is saying they're acting exactly like Pharaoh. They hadn't learned from Pharaoh. Pharaoh had wanted to set himself up over the Lord, but the Lord showed his sovereignty and his power, and now the people are doing the same thing that Pharaoh did. They're trying to set themselves up, but they had broken loose. They were no better than this pagan king. Any thoughts of looking down on Pharaoh with pride or contempt? We would never do that. We would never act like Pharaoh. No, you would act, act exactly like Pharaoh were it not for the grace of God. Yet, but by the grace of God, there go I. 
Moses saw the people had broken loose, the restraint was gone. So let us be remembered that restraint is good. It is a good thing. Self-control is good and godly. But Aaron also was responsible. As a leader, as a judge, he had let them break loose. Both the people and Aaron are responsible for the chaos that ensued because of their sin. And so Moses stood at the gate of the camp and declared, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. In fact, what's interesting is when Moses says this, he doesn't use any verbs. He just says, the Lord's side to me. If you are on the Lord's side, come to me. It's as if Moses had drawn a line in the sand, calling all the faithful people to God. Show yourselves. All who are on the Lord's side, now is the time to make it known. Separate yourselves from those sinners. And when it comes to the worship and service of Yahweh, there is only two sides. There is the side of evil and wickedness, and then there is the Lord's side. There are no other options. There is no third way. You cannot navigate a way between the way of the world and the way of the Lord. Either you are on Yahweh's side or you're not. Either you have pledged your allegiance to the Lord or not. Either you are devoted to the Lord or you are not. Yahweh's side is the side of truth and righteousness. The other side is the side of deceit and all manner of unrighteousness. And it was the faithfulness of the Levites who stepped out. It was the Levites, the ones who were to serve in the tabernacle and later in the temple, who publicly displayed that they were committed to serve the Lord, to serving the Lord. And the faithfulness of the Levites is meant to stand in stark contrast of the people who had broken loose in utter rebellion and chaos. The Levites do what all of God's people should do. They should separate themselves from sin. We are to separate ourselves from the other side. We cannot dabble in the other side and think that we are pleasing the Lord. What is the response to that question in our hearts? Who is on the Lord's side? Would we ever raise our hand and say, I have a question. How much do I have to give to be on the Lord's side? How much do I have to do? How much, in essence, is just enough to be on the Lord's side? How much does it take to be on the Lord's side? It takes everything. It takes all of you. It takes your complete heart, your complete devotion, your complete allegiance, to him. 
Who is on the Lord's side? What does the Lord require of those who are on his side? Does the Lord get to set the parameters of how you live your life? Does the Lord get to dictate to you how you live? Does the Lord get to dictate how you spend your money? Does the Lord get to dictate who you sleep with? Does the Lord get to dictate the words that come out of your mouth? Does the Lord get to dictate what you look at on your phone or on your computer? Does the Lord get to dictate maybe what food you eat or how much food you eat? Does the Lord get to dictate how you spend your time? Does the Lord get to dictate your attitudes and your thoughts? What is it or where is it in your life that you are as of yet unwilling to give up? Who was on the Lord's side? How much do I have to give? Do I really have to give all of that? And if there is something that you're holding back, if you're something that's saying, no, 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 I'll give most of myself to the Lord, but not everything, don't try to convince yourself then that you're on the Lord's side. Notice, this is the Lord's side. He is the determiner of his side. He says what his side is like, what should characterize his side. Notice it is not the Lord on our side, it is we who are on the Lord's side. And how many times have I heard people say that, oh, I'm so glad we've got God on our side. Think again, my friend. It is his side, not our side. When we speak like it is our side, we cause division and presume to make the Lord say and do things that he would never say and that he would never do to please our own selfish desires. If you think the Lord is on your side, it's time to think again. It can only and ever be we who are on his side because it is only and ever his side that is victorious and that will receive all the glory that is due his name. In the course of the Bible, this is a difficult lesson to learn. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. First Kings 18, verse 21. If you remember this event, the prophet Elijah is going to battle the prophets of Baal. There is going to be, as it were, this contest between this false god, Baal, and the true god, Yahweh. And Elijah says something to the people in verse 21. 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow, ba follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Do you hear it there? Which side is it going to be? You can't go limping between God and Baal. God and Baal. Back and forth. Back and forth. Or look at 2 Timothy. 
chapter 4, verse 10. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul had this companion, Demas. But what happened? Demas fell in love with this present world. He loved this world more than he loved Jesus Christ. And so he went back to the world. He's deserted Paul. He deserted the gospel. He deserted the work of the ministry. Or how about Matthew 13, verse 22? Matthew 13, 22. This is Jesus telling the parable of the seeds, and the seeds are thrown on different soils. And so verse 22 is the, the soil with thorns in it. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So here it is. The word of God falls on these hearts, and yet the world comes and chokes it out, does not let it take root. Over and over and over again, we are told there's only the Lord's side. There's only the Lord's side. And now it's no longer Moses calling us to the Lord's side. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself calling us to his side. Who is on Christ's side? Even Paul has to fight against this. He says to, to the church in Corinth, it's not Apollos' side, it's not Cephas' side, it's not even Paul's side, it's Christ's side and Christ's side alone. Separate yourselves from sin. Separate yourself from those who would influence you to sin and draw you to the other side. The faithful will flee from wickedness. The faithful will renounce evil. The faithful will say, we belong to the Lord. We are His. We are on His side. We will not live in darkness. We will not promote darkness. We will not say it is okay to live in sin and rebellion. We will stand in the light of Christ and shine His light into the darkness. Next point. We are to be softened by the severe nature of punishment. We are to be softened by the severe nature of punishment. Softened by the severe nature of punishment. This is maybe the most difficult part of this passage. Look at what it says here. And the sons of Levi gathered around him. In verse 1 of chapter 32, the Israelites had gathered to Aaron to make war on Yahweh. And now here is these Levites gathering to Moses. There's going to be a war. And what does Moses say? Thus says the Lord. This is not Moses' idea. This is not Moses' way of repaying the, Israels for the Israelites for the sin that they had done. 
This command is a command that comes from God. So to disobey this command is to disobey not man, but disobey God. What the Levites are about to hear comes from the sovereign Lord. And what does he command them to do? Put on your sword and go to and fro from gate to gate in the camp and kill your brother and your companion and your neighbor. We can only imagine how this would have cut to the heart of the Levites. Those whom you are closest to. These people whom you love. Your family, your kinsmen, kill them. It is necessary that we do not view this act as something random with no thought or intentionality, as if the Levites were just going through the camp and just swinging their swords and 3,000 people were unlucky enough to be killed by the Levites. No, this is a very purposeful, methodical action going from gate to gate. It's as if they're being told to approach everyone and see if they intended to return to Yahweh or not, to see if they were going to abandon their idolatry or not. But those who remained committed to their idolatry were to be killed. And some think that these 3,000 men are those 3,000 men that were the instigators those who were the most responsible for the actions that took place among the Israelites. One commentator even says, it is better that a few Israelites lose their lives rather than that the entire people should perish. Think about this action. What kind of love is this? Would we look at this and we say, God is commanding the Levites to love? The problem is, we define love by the sentimentality, the sentimentality of this world, not by the way that God defines love. We fall into this idea of, well, love is what makes me feel good. We define the love too often like the world defines love, and we define justice too often according to what we can justify and not by God's definition of justice. What kind of love is this? It's the same kind of love that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5 when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It is the love of the Lord that is committed to the radical eradication of sin. These 3,000 were unwilling to repent. They were wanting to remain in their sin. They were more committed to their sin than to the Lord. Do we think about love in these kind of categories? 
Let me talk to the kids for a second. Are there kids here that aren't in, aren't in children's church today? Let me have your eyes right here for a moment. This is, this is something just for you, all right? Just for you, special message just for you this morning. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to demand something from your parents. Oftentimes I don't tell kids to demand something from their parents, but here's one thing I want you to demand from your parents, okay? Demand that they teach you what it means to love Jesus and to know his love. Demand that they teach you the truth about love. Because that's what you need to know. Say, Mom, Dad, teach me what love looks like. Show it to me. Tell me about it. Don't let them off the hook. Don't let them off the hook. Keep saying, you need to show me what love is. And parents and grandparents, teach your kids and your grandkids what true gospel Jesus Christ love looks like. Because it's not the sentimentality of this world. It's not always what makes you feel good. It's about getting sin out of people's lives and hearts. And Jesus Christ is the one who can do that. And that's the kind of love I want our kids to know. I want our kids to know that they have to die to themselves. I want our kids to know how to deny themselves. I want our kids to know what it means to sacrifice themselves. I want our kids to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I want them to be the kind of people that Jesus talks about in John 13 when he says to his disciples, you love each other because it's by your love of one another that people will know you're my disciples. Guess what? That is not a love like this world knows. Here's where I think we can struggle. It was impossible to justify the thought of leaving idolaters in the midst of Israel who would only seek to influence other people away from their opportunity of eternal life. Jesus says this in Matthew 18, verse 6. Verse 5, 18.5 of Matthew. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Millstones, these giant stones that would be used to crush the grain, right? Jesus is saying it's like putting those on your neck and then cast that person to sea. It's better for a person to experience that than to cause someone else to sin. Because when you cause someone else to sin, when you lead someone else in that way, that is not love. To tolerate that, Jesus says, don't tolerate that sin. It puts us at this very important crossroad. 
a crossroad where it causes us to believe what God's word, what God's word says is actually true. Do people really deserve to die for their sin? Is it true what it says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death? Is the wages of sin death? People's lives and souls are at stake. And look at what it says. After these Levites had done this, 29, Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Through their action, the Levites were set apart for the Lord. Consecration, being set apart for the Lord, is costly. Do we think that being on the Lord's side would mean no sacrifice on your part? These men gave of themselves on that day. They did something almost unimaginably difficult. Yet through that, the Lord brought blessing. Through their act of obedience came blessing. That day, that day, would we think that our consecration would be any less costly? How is it that we are consecrated? How is it that we are set apart? Through the costliness of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ upon the cross. The severe nature of punishment we rightly deserved fell upon someone else. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Finally, we are to be astounded by the sacrificial nature of intercession. We are to be astounded by the sacrificial nature of intercession. This last section now, verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Notice here, Moses ascends to the Lord. He goes up, and he makes intercession. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? What does Jesus do? After he rises again from the dead, he ascends to the Lord to make intercession. In fact, challenge to read through God's word and see how it talks about ascending or going up oftentimes in God's word and then what happens after that. But Moses is going to ascend back to the mount, top of Mount Sinai and make intercession. And he says explicitly, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And in verse 30, we read him say this to the Israelites, you have sinned a great sin. And he says, your sin, this is communal liability for the sin. The community is still responsible and will be held to account by the Lord. Moses sought to reconcile the people back to God. Perhaps he can make them at one again with the Lord. 
And in verse 31, he goes to God and is completely transparent and upfront about the odiousness and the ugliness of the people's sin. He in no way tries to justify it or minimize it. It is heinous in his eyes. This is crucial in our understanding of repentance. Because the one who understates the reality of sin is demonstrating they are not really repenting of their sin. Let me say it again. If you understate the reality of your sin, you're not really repenting of your sin. Minimize it, downplay it, excuse it, ignore it, blame others for it. You cannot do any of those things and believe that you are truly repentant before the Lord. What is necessary in this case? It's forgiveness. Moses cries out, Lord, forgive these people. Forgive their sin. It's a forgiveness that only the Lord can provide, a forgiveness that is necessary for their life. And the need for forgiveness shows them also a need for a Savior who will bring this forgiveness to them. Moses lays the sin of the people before the Lord and goes so far as to offer his own life, it seems. Maybe I can make atonement. Maybe I can do something. Maybe I, maybe I can take their place. Blot my name out of the book, Lord. Let me be destined for wrath and punishment and separation from you. Moses understands that a sacrifice is needed. The problem is Moses is not suited to carry out the task of sacrifice. The substitute must be one without blemish or fault. It had to be someone who is able to bear the burden of another's guilt. And here we recognize it's the Lord who determines those who are to receive eternal life. And look with me, if you will, for one moment. Psalm 106. Psalm 106. We'll end here. Psalm 106. Verses 19 through 23. Psalm 106, verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses here is this chosen one who was to stand in the breach or to stand in the gap to turn the wrath of God's, uh, to turn away the, to turn away God's wrath from the people. But God says here in Exodus 32, Moses, you can't stand in the gap forever. He was insufficient to keep it up. And do you know who else is insufficient to stand in the gap? You are. And I am. We are completely insufficient to stand in the gap to turn God's wrath away from our sin. Who is it that is sufficient to stand in the gap permanently? Only Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the one who is sufficient to stand in the gap, to avert God's wrath, to bring forgiveness of sin to the people. 
to secure eternal life. He is the one who stands in the gap to avert God's wrath from falling upon us. He is the one who drank the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs so that no drop would be reserved for us. He is the one who saves us from our great sin. After darkness, light. Father, we praise you for your word. May it have its way with us this morning. May we obey it. May we be those who say we are on the Lord's side. And may we live like it. May we love like Christ loved. May we reject this silly notion of worldly love, which is so shallow, unsatisfying. Teach us to love like Christ loved. Teach us to sacrifice like Christ sacrificed. Teach us that he is the only one who can stand in the gap to save us from our sins and forgive us And bring us all the way home. We pray in his name. Amen.